Hey there, Peer Report listeners. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. This is a two-parter. So part one, I had the opportunity to sit down with Sean Rosemarin, our worldwide VP of Systems Engineering, and we ended up having a pretty long chat. So broke it into a couple parts. This part one that you're about to hear is a great background on Sean and kind of the fascinating way that he navigated his way into the IT field. And then we talk a little bit uh, about what's going on, kind of generic macro trends in the storage industry and challenges that he sees our customers facing on a daily basis. So uh, please listen to this part one, and then we'll also post a part two where we're going to go into some of the things that Pure is doing around our modern data experience. And now, Sean Rosemarin and the Pure Report. Greetings and welcome to the Pure Report. I am your host, Rob Ludeman, as usual. And it's time to bring the orange with our special guest, someone I've been chasing for a while, our worldwide VP of Systems Engineering, Sean Rosemarin. How are you, my friend? Excellent. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for carving out a little time in your schedule here, because I know you're not always out, uh, uh, here from out of town, um, residing up in Canada, right? Yeah, yeah out in Vancouver. So uh... Out yeah, out, out and about in Vancouver. Out and about, it's good. It's so, good to get a little Canadian influence. Well, I feel I like we should it. we should play the Canadian national anthem before this. Yeah, like yeah. They do at hockey games. Well, I expect right? that you will. It was in my contract. Yeah, we uh, <laughs> I figured I'd get the Canadianisms out of the way early. Yeah. Uh, so Other ones you want to get out of the way early? What? Oh, well, we could say about, a and about, about and, and a. You know, all those sort of things. It's kind of uh, overrun, though. I mean, that's one that gets too much play. Well, you know, the Mackenzie brothers and all that stuff. You know, going way back. Oh the uh, oh yeah Bob and Bob Doug. Doug oh yeah Bob yeah Doug Strange Brew one yeah. of our classics it's a really nice fresh 1982 reference that I'm bringing yeah, to yeah, the pod no, for I all those younger folks here you don't but... see a lot of Strange Brew references yeah, these days but yeah, uh, yeah anyways uh, Bob and Doug are fine Bob and Doug and, are fine uh, and yeah. you're fine and you're here yes and we're yes. doing this finally and I, I love that you're a fan thanks for being such a big advocate for the program no it's great uh, it's I always find podcasts it's one of the most flexible venues or avenues now to increase your learning and see what's going on in the world. And, uh, yeah, it's the vast majority of my windshield time and runway time and airline time and just about everything else out there. It's um, middle of the night time, right? Sometimes when I can't sleep, yeah, I was, uh, there's times that I look for, uh, Rob Ludeman to help me get back to bed, (laughs) get back to sleep in those insomnia nights. Ah, and, and with that validation, we'll jump right in. Uh, how long you been at Pure? What's, what's the, what's the timeline? Well, I joined in Valentine's Day of 2019 and you know what they say when you join a company on Valentine's Day, you must love the company. Um, so exactly. (laughs) So we're coming up on one year and, uh, of course joining on Valentine's Day meant I wasn't with my wife, uh, which wasn't so popular. Popular, uh, on the marriage side of things. But um, yeah, just coming up to a year and I can't believe a year's gone by. It's been just incredibly fast. Biggest insights in the last year? Things that you didn't know you knew coming in or things you thought you knew that were different about Pure? Yeah. Look, you know, there's not a lot of companies out there on the planet that are 3,000 people um, that still have the, the personality, the vigor, the liveliness of a startup. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of companies that you could just walk the halls and, and just find so many people uh, who are still in this mentality of, you know, how can we do it better? How can we do it faster? How can yeah. we get, yeah. you know, my customer's looking for something, like just walk down the hall, knock on someone's door. Can we do this? Can we get it done? Uh, it's refreshing. It's just really, really refreshing. Yeah, the customer first mentality certainly still pervades, you know, what we're doing here. I mean, it's not just window dressing, something that we say. 
uh, something that I notice all the time. And certainly, you know, you're running the, the systems engineering team out there. You, you probably have that instilled in your folks or it would already was when you got in here. Yeah. yeah, the the um, the SC team here is really something special. I mean, inheriting a bunch of folks who not only know the technology at a very deep level and spend a lot of time talking to customers about it, but they have a ton of hands-on experience with it. Mm-hmm. And so they're constantly helping their clients understand, how do I optimize? Um, you know, how do I get the most um, out of that architecture? Spending weekends and afternoons and evenings with the clients because they just love the technology. They love how simple it is. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's just very different from a traditional, hey, I'm going to get the deal done. I'm going to move on to the next. Uh, these guys are passionate about what we've built, passionate about where we're going. Uh, and it really it kind of fuels that down to the customer level where I still can't believe, uh, you know, how many true fans I see out there uh, who just have, have, you know, taken their first shot with Pure and ultimately have seen the simplicity it drives and have just kept on going. Yeah, it's always fun to scroll through my LinkedIn timeline, right? Because we sort of have a tradition of, you know, customers taking pictures with partners or our SEs when they go and do the the, the install. And it's always fun just to see the smiling face and orange logo and, and everybody kind of doing a thumbs up. I, I mean, I think I see those almost on a daily basis. And that's just a really great testament to, to what you're describing there. They, they have. In fact, one of the coolest things I've seen lately is a lot of the SEs have started to put stickers on the boxes, um, right? So, you know, say Tom was here or you know, Mary was here or, or Bob was here and it's a little, you know, animated caricature of themselves and it's stuck on the box. Dimitri. I saw uh, right. Dad. Dimitri was here, right? I mean, did, he, he does them all that? over. Did he yeah, start I think, that, I think he started it. That's the first one I noticed. And so, you know, it's all, we always get a kick out of it because it's usually yeah. our first box or one of our follow-on boxes inside the customer's environment. And you can just imagine rare competitors showing up and seeing it. And it's just like, ah, like, you know, <laughs> Dimitri was here. Yeah. I love that. That's great. Hey, what's your journey like? How do, how do you, you know, you don't just kind of jump into this kind of role. Um, how, how'd you get here? Where'd you start out? What have you navigated towards? Um, well, it's, a, always, it's yeah. a funny story. You know, yeah. everybody always assumes when you head up uh, worldwide systems engineering that you started as a computer guy way back and, yeah. you know, your dad brought the first Atari and you took it apart. That's not my, no. that's not my voyage at all. In fact, I didn't even have uh, have my first computer until I'm going to say 96 or 97. Uh, we had access to them at the library, but ultimately what happened was it was a journey of convenience. <laughs> um, I went out to Queen's University, did my uh, commerce degree out there, and uh, just fundamentally ran out of money in my second year of university. Just literally ran just out flat of out. all my money. Yeah. My parents were not in a position to necessarily support me, and uh, the choice was, hey, we'll, uh, we'll happily have you back home. Uh, well, in my situation, I wasn't necessarily uh, really keen about going back home and going yes, to school yes. from home after <laughs> lived after having lived the off the on campus mm-hmm. life. Oh yeah, and um, so I said, okay, I better find a job. Looked around the jobs; nothing could really pay me enough to be able to put myself through school. Uh, but I did look around and see a urgent need in the campus, which was the majority of my friends had computers, and they were all desktops back then, and they were breaking. And there was no one to fix them, and the only way to fix them was to bring them to the store. Well, computers are heavy, and most students don't have cars. Yep. So the concept of an in-home computer service emerged in my head with one small problem. I didn't know anything about computers. (laughs) Slight (laughs) challenge for you there. Right. Yeah, just a minor challenge. The good news was I knew a lot of people who did know a lot about computers. Yeah. Uh, And so I built up a very small team, and essentially I put up uh, just, you know, posters all over campus that said, if you've got a computer problem, call us. Now, please remember, this is in the days long before the internet. So it wasn't just go get a driver and download it and install it. This was all about carrying disks and knowing all the various, you know, different... um, uh, firmwares and, and PCs that had been built up and what kind of, you know, uh, software was installed from the start. Anyways, I essentially took the calls, uh, sold people on our service 
and then was able to um, dispatch the technician. And we had during business hours and after business hours, we got to deal with fun stuff like, oh, I've lost my exam and it's the last minute. Nonetheless, ran that for two years, yeah. uh, put myself through school, uh, thought about extending it across all the campuses that were out there. Queens was unbelievably helpful to me. They gave me the contract for the School of Business. They gave my, my company the contract, so they supported their own and really supported entrepreneurship. Um, and then I got a job offer to go be an SAP consultant with uh, one of the big, uh, big firms. When you'd finished your, your school, when I'd finished, when you'd finished, right. And, so. uh, you know, so I took this SAP consulting job and, you know, we always went through school thinking consulting would be awesome. That'd be the oh, dream job. Sure. Everybody would want to do Everybody it. wants to be a consultant. Right. So we got certified and, uh, anyways, consulting wasn't quite what, uh, I expected it to be. It was a lot of, of work in terms of deployment and, uh, development and rollout of systems, but it wasn't a lot of interaction hmm. uh, with the clients themselves. You had to earn that right. You had to work 10, 15, 20 years to be actually interfacing the client. Most of the uh, initial work was a lot of back, uh, back office work. So it was pretty lonely. Uh, very lonely. Or yeah. just, just no client engagement, I guess. You know, not enough engagement, not enough right. closeness to the actual people who were going to be using the system. It felt a little bit isolated. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I looked at my roots and I said, what did I really love to do? Well, I loved selling. Uh, that's where I started my business and what I started doing. So I went to the firm and I said, hey, could I go into sales? Can I start selling stuff? Uh, happened to be IBM and IBM was entering the x86 market at the time with their Netfinity server. And so I started selling servers um, as my own... AE, account executive, and SE. Anyways, graduated through that. Um, realized that I loved selling. Um, I wanted to take a, a trip to management. So I took my first management roles and fell in love instantly with the concept of leading teams. Seeing the amount of scale and the amount of um, success you can breed, the size of the results when you have a large team uh, underneath you that can kind of follow and, um, and, and give you feedback and really iterate to make a model more and more successful. Which you were kind of doing in the company started too, right? You had a bunch of, cons you know, you were effectively leading a team doing the, the, the computer fixing. Yeah. In, you, in a similar way, right? For, for sure. And, yeah. And right? you know, I, I think early on in your career, you make a real decision that says, you know, is my passion truly as a thought leader and an individual contributor? Meaning right. I want to go all the way up and be, whether CIO, CTO, CEO, but I don't necessarily want to be on the leadership side. I want to really be a thought leader. I want mm -hmm. to really come up with the next big invention, the next big device, the next big uh, innovation ideas. And yeah, there's a yeah. tremendous career for folks like that. Oh, absolutely. On the management side though, the track has to stem to leadership mm -hmm. and it has to be, can you scale? Can you inspire? Um, can you motivate large groups of people against a, a cause that in some cases, right, is bigger than any one individual person. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, at the end of the day, what happened was I then fell in love with the concept of, um, technology as a whole, what it could do for business. I started to look at what technology could do for healthcare in terms of really improving people's vitality, not necessarily saving lives, um, but making people more, um, the, increasing the vitality of people's lives day to day. I looked at things like financial services. I looked at the consumerization of IT, being able to really fuel uh, growth of society and growth of people's careers. I mean, the fact that now an individual uh, programmer out in India for less than $50 can go and run uh, on infrastructure. Yeah. And be able to test a concept that could bloom into a massive idea, a multi-billion dollar business. That was just never possible before. And um, with that, I've just kind of really, uh, you know, turned my career to uh, leading and motivating, but also taking very complex technology that few people understand and being able to find a way to really simplify it. Find a way to take what's really important and be able to net it out 
both to folks who are technical and want to get into the details, but also folks who really want to stay a little yeah, bit higher. It's like a translation chain. mechanism, right? If you will. I'm yeah, a glorified babblefish, really. Yeah, 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 it's a babblefish kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, I love that. Yeah. Once again, another reference that we hope our millennial audience. Yeah, another nice fresh sure. reference, but uh, <laughs> that's okay. We can, I'm we aging can, myself. We can, we can, we can. We can oh, no, I, I have a habit of doing movie quotes and things. Uh, yesterday, I was recording a pod and I did something out of Spinal Tap. Right. I mean, that's. Yeah, yeah. Well, old, old. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So, Turn it to 11. You know, yeah. And there's, there's, a, there's a segment of this audience that is, is going to laugh at that. And there's another segment that's going to go, huh? What's that? But either way, that's good. So that brought you here. That's, that's kind of the whole, the whole backdrop. It's interesting, um, the, the inspirational things for you, though, um, about what, what drives and motivates you, the whole part about driving a team. How much of what you do is leadership and how much of you do is management? Right? There's different philosophies around that. Uh, you know, I, I, the, here's the interesting part. So when you t first take your first management job, there yeah. is a lot of management. So you're actually out inspecting what's happening in each right. individual on the team. Um, you know, a lot of approving expenses, uh, you know, setting up, um, making sure people are following protocol or aware of what's going on in the company. Um, you know, as you develop up to second level and third level, first of all, hopefully you're hiring great people. Oh, yeah. Um, because the easiest thing about being a great leader is if you do hire great people, then just get out of the way. Exactly. Uh, I think Steve Jobs said that, and it absolutely rings true. Um, but as you as you build um, and become a little bit uh, higher to the executive team, your team is relying on you to translate what's happening at the corporate level, what we're saying to shareholders, what we're mm -hmm. saying to investors, what we're saying to our biggest customers, and how that's relevant to their particular job. Right? It, it sounds obvious, but if you ask individuals, what is it that you do every day? And how is it important in the overall vision of the company, the overall direction of where you're going, not just in terms of your profit and loss and your, um, your financials, but where you're going as a company. Yeah, what's the vision? And if they yeah. understand that, the yeah. amount of energy and enthusiasm they'll put into work is drastically different. Mm -hmm. But without that, there's no sense of purpose. I do a bunch of things. I don't know how they translate up. So I come in every day and I do the things I have to do. But I'm not really connected to the impact of those. Mm. And therefore, the emotional side is, is, is missing. And as a leader, it is really your role to inspire against what that mission is and how your particular function is so critical to that mission, right? I mean, best example I could think of was, I'm sure everybody's seen the picture of President Kennedy who stopped when he's walking through NASA and talks to the uh, janitor who happened to be sweeping the floor. Yeah. And he asked the guy, you know, it's a pleasure to meet you. Um, he's asking the janitor, he's like, what do you do here? And the janitor says, I put men on the moon. Yeah. Part I mean, the team. that is a pretty profound sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. But we think about, we count on our leaders yeah. to drive that sense of connection between the company's purpose, the company's mission, and all the way down. And if leaders do that effectively, great things happen. Yeah. Well, and it's, I, I make it analogous. What's popping through my head is when we talk about business outcomes, right? You know, for clients, for customers, things we talk, it's the same kind of thing, right? You've got to translate what you can do, the things you offer technologically into a, a positive outcome for them. So, you know, connecting your teams and helping them understand that what they do has a direct contribution or relationship to where we're going, what we're trying to do makes, makes absolute sense. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, you travel a lot out there. You probably see a ton of people on your team, see a ton of clients, potential customers, existing customers. What, um, what are the top few things that you are seeing that, um, that customers are, are, are struggling with right now? What's, what's going on, particularly relative to data? Let's bring it home, make it a little bit more relevant to, to you know, the things that we do here at Pure. Sure. So look, you know, one of the hardest things we have to grasp 
as a human civilization is we have a lot of trouble with really big numbers. Yeah. When numbers get too big, we can't connect to them. And, you know, data is one of those things. And so at the end of the day, right, you look at the World Economic Forum, we're talking about the digital universe reaching 44 zettabytes in 2020. That's all the data ever produced, ever saved in the world, 44 zettabytes. Well, it's cool that I can come up with another word that starts with Z. And yeah, it has a Z. Yeah. Well, on Scrabble, mm -hmm. you now have another word to yeah. potentially use. Yeah. Um, but the reality is, let's try to break this down so that it can be understandable. So that's, that's 10x in the amount of total data in the world since 2013. So we're only seven years in, in the history of mankind Ever. and civilization, right. yet we've gone up 10x yep. exponentially since 2013. And on a per-person basis... Well, and on a per person basis, we're talking about six terabytes per person for every person on earth. Now, I don't know about you at home. I do have a personal computer. My personal computer has a one terabyte hard drive. Well, I can't even hold my share of the world's data. Yeah. But think about for a moment, if you take all 7 billion people on earth, that's more than six billion, excuse me, six terabytes per person. It's enormous. Massive. But the reality is we also think about storage and my customers think about data traditionally as databases, systems of record. Right? Systems of differentiation, systems of innovation are where all the growth has been happening. But the majority of what we've been used to managing and been used to dealing with are traditional databases, yeah. Oracle, SQL, yeah. uh, SAP HANA, um, and the such. The reality is file and object are now growing in excess of 30% year on year. Why? Well, we know why. Object um, and file are unstructured data. Think of how much unstructured data we're generating. Tons. Look at your consumer life. What do you all got on your time. phone? Every How much day. data is sitting on your phone? Yeah. Tons. And it's all unstructured. Yeah. Videos, audio files. Um, then think about the streaming world. Yeah, social stuff, right? Social apps. Right. All We're that. going from the internet of people to the internet of machines where machines are going to be generating as much chatty data as we do today as people on Facebook and Twitter. And I mean, machines are going to be basically going and building their own social networks to talk to each other. It was all the personal assistants, right? I mean, that's all creating data as well. Right. Yeah. So you, then you start to think about all the information that's being fed through all of these digital assistants. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Another explosion. And then you look at object. And I mean, we can touch on this in more detail, but when I think about the evolution of S3 in the object platform, I mean, the developers love it. Developers have completely embraced it because of its simplicity. Most corporate organizations are still struggling to understand how they're going to make this real for themselves. How are they going to adopt that simplicity of S3 object in their data center? Mm -hmm. So... You know, going forward with that, you look at this dramatic growth, you look at this extension across block, file, and object, and then you look at the way this industry has gone over the last 30 or 40 years. What's really interesting is if you break down infrastructure, compute has been innovated in some tremendous ways. Look at the hypervisor. Yep. Right? Look at the innovation that's come from Intel. Look at pushing the innovation. You look at what AMD did to push Intel's roadmap. I mean, we've done some amazing things in compute, but primarily the hypervisor really brought us to a whole other level. The concept of a virtual machine. You look at networking, you think about virtual networks, you think about what's going on in SD-WAN, you think about what's going on, um, you know, in the worlds of Cisco, uh, Arista, um, VMware NSX. I mean, tremendous innovation to just make things simpler, make things more automated. And then we turn to storage. 40 years of archaic, inflexible, rigid architectures. But here's the funny part. Because it's been so long, most of our clients have just absolved themselves to the fact that storage is complex. Just always has been, it. always will yeah. be. Yeah. In fact, I was meeting with a client last week and what they said was, yeah, we agree it's complex. 
But we've had 30 years, we built organizations, full job titles, hierarchies, full systems and processes to support this complexity. Because we've just absolved ourselves to the fact that it is what it is and we're gonna have to use people and process to supplement for archaic, inflexible, old, outdated technology. And so because of this, um, they're drowning in technical debt. Yeah. You know, it might not be a problem today because you've built the people in process, but when I sit back and I say, okay, so let's just put things together, your data volume is going to grow by 50%, at least from what it is today over the next three years. Yep. And you are likely to get no additional people to help you manage it. Yeah, Where a, does it break? There's a huge imbalance, right? In the budgets and the cost with the, with the amount of growth that's going on. Right, right. where does yeah. it break? Where yeah. do you say no? And when you yeah. say no, what's the impact to the business? Yeah. Which projects are left on the shelf? That's the lost opportunity piece. I think, uh, you know, I was just reading a study that that's on average $2 million a year. Right, and lost opportunity just by not being able to, to you know, access and do what you need to do with data, ranging as high as twenty-five million. Right, I mean, a limited survey with hundreds of companies, but yeah, what are you not going to do? Well, that's just it. And if you if you really break it down, we all use this word efficiency. How do I maximize efficiency? But that breaks down to how do you do more with less? Right. Or more specifically, how do you say yes to more projects? Mm -hmm. Like if every IT organization just sat down and said, what would we have to do to say yes? to more projects. Because we've all talked about, we all read the Phoenix project and we talked about lean and agile and being able to really go to minimally viable products. And all this is great. DevOps teams love it. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's IT that has to say yes to all of that. And in the old world, you see the decision process is a little different because we built these exhaustive business cases for hundreds of potential new apps and they went through a very comprehensive board review and nothing got built. And then you came down with two. And those two, you put all your budget on those two and you hoped one was a success. Well, now the world's changed. Now I submit 100 proposals. 50 of them get funded through minimally viable product, which means an IT organization actually has to stand up an environment or approve public cloud resources right. to support those 50 minimally viable products. Then I have to test the validity of the MVP. But essentially, you've now become this innovation engine. You become a catalyst. If you can support it, the business is going to say, well, now we, we essentially are hedging all our risk. We can put more projects into the yeah, funnel. We can do more. We can ultimately. put them through the qualification, right. test yeah, the yeah. value, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. And so this technical debt has been drowning our customers' innovation. It's an interesting concept, technical debt. And yeah. to make it real, I mean, we just came off the New Year's holiday. Right. This technical debt is also causing personal pain. I have clients. I asked them how their New Year's was. I guess I put my foot in my mouth in some respects. They said New Year's was terrible. I was working. Yeah. Why are you working on New Year's? I said, I hope it was double time or triple time. Nope. Salaried employee. Worked on Christmas, worked on New Year's. Why? I was doing a storage migration. Yep. Why were you doing it then? Well, I needed downtime. That's the only time the company can give us downtime because we now work 24-7. We all know we live it. And so at the end of the day, this is not just having economic consequences on innovation for companies. It's having personal consequences There's personal pain right, that comes as a result. Yeah. Yeah. Which you hate to see. Right? It hey, shouldn't be that way if it doesn't have to be that way. If yeah. it doesn't have to be that way, then why not do something about it? Right. We all know change is hard. I get people process yeah. technology, yeah, yeah. but the reality is, right? I mean, being now a 10-year-old company is pure. I love helping clients understand that they have a better choice. So you've got antiquated methods of, of dealing with data, right? These legacy approaches that impact lives and impact economics and, and have lost opportunity. Yeah, we keep hearing so much about digital transformation, digital transformation, digital transformation. Like it's just, it, they're, they're, I mean, they're good buzzwords, but I think we're starting to see a shift from digital transformation as initiatives to like mainstream. 
right? It's, it's actually becoming uh, a way of operating as opposed to just, well, this is something we think we want to take on. Um, what, what's going to enable that? What, why, why are we going to see digital, digital transformation become a little bit more mainstream? Well, so it's funny you bring it up. I mean, yeah. we used to talk about digital transformation and then it was like a line of business and then some companies had chief digital innovation officers yeah. and they tried to do this bimodal thing, keep the old stuff here and the new stuff here. And we saw that that didn't work for a wide variety of reasons. But there used to be a saying, I'm going to say 10 years ago when I was, I was kind of going through my IT career that said, IT people who don't understand business will be doomed as they go through their career. Yeah. And what I would say now is business people who don't understand technology will be doomed. It goes both ways. It does. Yeah. But yeah. you see, digital or technology is no longer a part of the business. It is the business. Yeah. If you think of some of the most successful companies in the world, um, they're technology companies that do retailing. They're mm -hmm. technology companies that make cars. They're technology companies that deliver packages. But the one thing that's common is they're all moving to they are technology companies first. Yeah that happen to focus their innovation to solve a very specific set of problems. Um, the fact is digital transformation is not a trend. It's the number one goal of every organization and it's 100% reliant on data. See, the reality is he who has access and can monetize the data the fastest wins. Which is what a lot of those business models are built around. Right. Ultimately, right? I mean, that's what you got to do, you know. How do you go deliver packages and have the technology under it if you don't have the data that you can go manipulate and understand so that you can optimize and beat your competition? Well, right? you got you it. Have to. You have I to. I mean, the only reason Uber capitalized on the opportunity the way they did was that the taxi companies weren't using all the data they'd had for decades. No. They didn't know how to use time. it. Right. They hadn't even thought about what they could do with it. No. Right? But you think about now the amount of information you can glean just from one person's Uber account. You think about what you could do with that. You look at their history. You think of the opportunities you can give to them. You think of the monetization. Let's assume that you're not just selling it into blatant advertising, but you're, you're actually positioning things that would be valuable to me. Right. The relationship you can form with me as a customer is tremendous. Mm -hmm. It's so rich. Um, the reality is, though, the vast majority of this data sits on legacy storage. See, and the transformation of this requires funding to architect, build, and run these new apps. And so you have to find backend efficiency. To my point earlier of like, if the data went up by 50% and you didn't have any additional people, how would you manage? Right. You'd be stealing. You'd be choking innovation to keep that model going. But the other thing that's happened is like, let's not forget, right? Cloud has really come a long way. I remember a point five years ago where we weren't sure if cloud was a fad. We weren't sure if cloud was going to destroy the data center. We really weren't sure where this thing was going to go. No, 10 years ago, I mean, 10 years ago, it was cloud is going to overtake everything. Right. 10 years ago, we weren't even sure ago, if a book company could run servers. Right, exactly. And now, you know, it's settling. It's definitely settling. But the reality is it has evolved from what was an existential threat to the data center to an extension of the data center. Yeah, yeah. Right, if you think about the internet, I mean, we've been comfortable running workloads outside the walls of our homes for a very, very long, long time. time. Mm -hmm. All we're doing is just stretching that network further. We went from, you know, an initial data center to the cloud, and now we'll move to the edge. And I'm sure beyond the edge, there'll be the micro edge. There'll mm -hmm. be all the other parts we can't touch. There's lots of layers, yeah. Right, yeah. and with 5G, we've now got the performance and latency to be able to reach there. Yeah. But the reality is the cloud is an extension of the data center, gives us not just a new place to run workloads that get us closer to where we want to be, but also gives us a consumption model of as a service that's extremely attractive. Mm -hmm. Data protection, 
lots of themes going on in data protection. You did a whole episode on it, it's which I episode. highly recommend. Yeah, I mean, it's an end-to-end -end thing, right? I mean, it, 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 it conceptually was kind of just backup, but it's, it's gone way beyond backup and restore now, right? There's so much more to it, many more facets. It used to be backup in case I'm going to need something. Yeah. Now it's tag it so that in case I need it for governance and compliance, I know where it is. Right. So I actually have full... Um, chain of custody on every piece of data. And you think about things like GDPR and the new compliance laws coming into California. Yep. I mean, you need to know where all your data is, but more importantly, it's moved from backup to restore. Yeah. If I had to restore, could I? And if so, how long would it take me? And if I couldn't solve my ransomware through snaps or clones, how long would it take me to restore that volume from backup? And how much would it cost? <laughs> Probably less than the ransom, and you don't. Perhaps. Have, and, and most and most uh, and most uh, backup and restore vendors don't uh, take Bitcoin. But yeah, yeah. Uh, and and so when you think about what's going on, you know, this governance and compliance cloud has brought tremendous benefits to the consumer, but it's put a huge onus on organizations uh, to look at the way in which they store and protect their data in a whole different way. And now ransomware has put a whole new focus on yeah. it's not just about backing it up and having it in the event of a disaster. It's about the real consequence of how quickly could you restore. Yeah. Um, security encryption don't go away. They're no. getting bigger. Those are pervasive. As soon as we yeah. can encrypt, someone can figure out how to decrypt. And so right. now end-to-end -end encryption is becoming an absolute mandatory requirement yeah. uh, for a lot of our clients. And then, you know, it wouldn't be a technology show if we didn't mention containers at least once. Got to talk about containers. Check that box. Yeah, it's, I mean, but look. In, in reality, right, in seriousness, the adoption is out there. I mean, the some of the um, the CIO summits that I've gone and moderated recently, I mean, there's there's groups that are taking legacy apps and legacy hardware and they're retraining their entire teams and they're just taking on containerized architectures. It's That's, all about coming up with a thinner and thinner wrapper to yeah. encapsulate, isolate, abstract my applications and we saw it in physical initially when we just bought, you know, we got smaller and smaller servers. Remember one new server was a really big deal. And then we went to VMs and we saw how small could we make mm -hmm. a VM. And then we went to this thought of micro VMs. I was over at VMware for five years in my career. So I had a lot of fun over there in the, in the CTO office, looking at all sorts of stuff. Um, and now we're with containers, yeah. the single smallest uh, abstraction uh, component. That allows us to spin up workloads and spin them down and do things like, uh, you know, Lambda functions and otherwise to drive more uh, efficiency. Yeah. What, so you have these new things coming out, but it's really, it comes down to what is, what is that bridge? And if I'm a new company starting today, probably don't have too many of those challenges, right? I'm not going to go off and get some, you know, off the shelf app that's been around for 30 years to run. And I'm not going to be obviously buying old hardware, but the reality of it is these things stick around. It's challenging to get off whatever ERP system that you chose or whatever supply chain management system you chose and whatever database you chose. If you've been around for, you know, let's say longer than 10 or 15 years or so, um, what can, what can people go and do and are some of those old, I think so we did a pod on, I was telling you we did a pod on this yesterday with Stephen Foskett and we were going to go this direction anyway. It's very coincidental, but you know, there's some of those old technologies that are still out there, you know, that are, that are, that people want to say are dead, but they're around. They're zombies. Are they zombies? Really? Not necessarily. Mm -hmm. So, but where do you go? Like, what, what do you do if you're in a situation where you're running kind of this legacy approach? How can you get from A to B? Well, so, I mean, first acknowledge and we acknowledge and we empathize that change is hard. Yeah. Right. And in the absence of any clear direction or clear value, you keep doing what you always did because mm -hmm. it's the easiest way to go. Um, 
but you know, at the end of the day, there's a couple things I've kind of seen in the marketplace that, that have really told us we have the right model. Um, first and foremost, uh, the, at least all vendors are now talking about and promising similar things. Yeah. All vendors are acknowledging that storage is complex. All vendors are acknowledging that there has to be a better way. So it's kind of mainstreamed. It's mainstream. Yeah. We've yeah. all, yeah. you know, what is it? We've kind of accepted the fact yeah. that it's that it's complex. We've also accepted the fact that, you know, even though we've proclaimed the death of mainframe and risk for decades, the reality is mainframe and risk are sticking around. I mean, you and I talked before the podcast. I mean, if you've got children that are, oh, I don't know, 13, 15, 18, and they're not sure what to do with their lives, have them go be trained to be mainframe administrators. Yeah. Because yeah. they will have a guaranteed job. There will be. Probably mm -hmm. a very, you know, successful job. Um, given how long the tail is on that technology. Yeah. Not a lot of net new workloads, but they're still a fact of life. Go learn the basics um, and they're going to be around. Yeah. And so what this says is one size doesn't fit all. Yep. You know, there's more and more pressure on the enterprise architects to really look at the applications and understand that it is now their job to not just find the best platform to run it on, but find the best venue in which for it to operate. Today, it's the core and the, um, and the cloud. Soon it'll be the edge, the core and the cloud. And how are you going to start to think about the architectures to support that? Mm -hmm. um, but last but not least, I mean, if there's one thing you can eliminate, just get rid of the term forklift upgrade. Like this merry-go-round of every three years, just I got to plan this, yeah. this coronary event where I got to rip out all my storage and I got to migrate it and I got to bring in a brand new platform and I have to be down for a week and then nothing ever goes exactly as planned and it's usually in the middle of the night. Like these forklift upgrades are painful. Full stop. And that's back to your your point on personal pain, right? Talking to the individuals who are working on holidays and things where that actually impacts impacts lives. I mean, what, probably the most the most impact that I had in speaking with a user for Pure happened at a conference a few months ago, where it was a database administrator who came up to me and and we were talking. I may have repeated this on another episode, but. Um, but he said, oh, yeah, we started using Pure a year ago. And, and we talked through some of the technological advantages and things and ways that it changed and impacted their business. And I said, what's it done for you? Like, what, what, what has that done? And he said, quite simply, I have eight to 10 weekends per year back with my family. And that was when it really hit home, right? Because there's, of course, there's the technological and financial outcomes and changes. But when you change the life of somebody and give them time back with their family, that's huge. That well, was massive. It's, it's uh, the family aspect is 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 massive. Yeah. Um, as is something as simple as, you know, the VM administrator calls up and says, "Hey, look, I'm getting an error that we're out of storage space, and I need you to come back to the office." And let's assume you're out just having a round of golf. Right. It's the afternoon. It's right. the middle of the summer. Yeah. It's, you know, in some states, in parts of Canada, you only get about ten sunny days a year or fewer uh, to go and enjoy the heat. <laughs> and to be able to pull out your phone and actually pull up Pure One and be able to pull up the app and know that you're not an issue. And get back to your life? Like, this isn't rocket science. Yeah. But it's so long overdue right. for change. Right. Right? And that's really, I think, what Pure's been able to do in our, in our evolution here is really present an option that isn't about protecting the legacy, protecting the past, yeah. but actually building the model um, that our customers want today. Yeah. And that's what we've been done for, you know, for 10 years. Right? 10 years about, I don't know, making Flash mainstream, right? And... and some of the benefits that come with that around performance, but also just the, the, you know really that mindset with Evergreen that it can be easier, the upgrade paths non-disruptively. I mean, there are a lot of things, and then and it's going to be exciting to see you know where we go the next ten years. I mean, that's a whole you know 
And that's kind of you know where we're going to evolve to here, talking about you know about this whole modern data experience thing.